world would the devil have? What could he do to us anymore if there was no longer anything he could do to scare us? If there was no fear? Because we get better with death. We remove the, the weakness of this flesh. The scripture is clear and, and C.S. Lewis does a great job of describing this. He says that, that one day we will, the Lord will take this fleshly body and he'll throw it on the heap with the rest of the dead and sinful things. And there will stand our true man, our spirit, naked and barren before God our truest self. And some of the people who've been crippled in their, in their fleshly body or, or weak will stand like giants. And some of the ones who seem to be afraid of nothing on the earth will be shriveled little people. See, for me to get rid of this fleshly body, I only get better. This is not good. So I have nothing to fear. To die is gain. And to live is to live to Christ. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Beloved, you have no fear. <laughs> if death is better for us, what could possibly hurt us? I'm not saying this to you this morning to just encourage you so you feel better. Not my intention. Feelings are that of the flesh. But that you would, that you would reckon, you, know, you would consider, you would reconcile yourself to the truth, whether you like it or not whether you believe it to be so or not, that you would be reconciled to the truth that there is no fear in Christ because it only gets better. Can we just pray about that this morning? Lord, the word amen, you know you've taught us that it means faith. We believe is what we're saying. And so Lord, amen to your truth. Amen to living in Christ. Amen to death being game. A amen to we have nothing to lose. Amen to the, the devil has no foothold. Amen to our truth. Amen and amen and amen, Lord. And we all the people say amen. Amen and amen. So good. You guys can be seated. Thank you so much again for coming today. Like I said, my name is Beck. And I, uh, you guys will have me for the month of July. I probably shouldn't publicize that because then we have nobody come to church. You guys will get Alex back again in August, but I do hope that you'd uh, join us as we uh, continue through the book of, of Romans. Today's sermon is called Slaves and Masters, a sermon on the Christian's freedom and independence. We're in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Uh, this will be uh, somewhat of a two-part message, if you will, next week. We're going to continue on in, in chapter six of the book of Romans, but I, uh, uh, I'm interested about this this message falling at this time. We know this week is the 4th of July. Uh, I'm like a rookie. I'm like a history buff, the same level I'm a carpenter. Very much a rookie. Uh, but 241 years ago, uh, our framers got together, and on July 2nd, they decided to declare their independence. It took two days for uh, this group of men to uh, write something chiefly written by Thomas Jefferson, and all was signed on July 4th. It was a declaration of war separating themselves legally from Great Britain. We call this the Declaration of Independence. John Adams was one of those... Uh, Framers, and yeah, I was just reading through a journal at, of his at Starbucks, kind of learning about the Fourth of July and its history. And I just wanted to read this to you today as we as we celebrate this this week. This is a letter that he wrote to his wife on the third of July, uh, and it says this: His wife's name is Abigail. On the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to the Lord God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games, sports, guns, bells, fires, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time in my favorite part of this story, forevermore. John Adams in 1776 had a pretty good idea of what the 4th of July would be like. So you ask where the fireworks come from and why everybody runs around. I don't know, maybe the they publicized his letter to Abigail. As I'm looking forward to one of my favorite holidays, not only is a... 
historian, uh, but as, as an American, I don't consider myself a patriot in that of practice, um, but that of in heart and spirit. I'm so thankful to be in this country and that God would sovereignly uh, just take care of us so well. Uh, 241 years of freedom has its benefits. But also in the Western church, I've noticed that it has its drawbacks. We've, in some ways, mixed the concept of American freedom and the liberality or freedom we gain as Christians in the Christian life. And we kind of smushed them together. That's a very technical biblical word, smushed. We've smushed them together. And over the years, we can't tell one from the other to be free as Christians, it has to be the same thing as being free as an American, because we're free. It's, freedom is only one definition. And I, I would contend to challenge each one of you today to consider the notion that our freedom in Christ doesn't look like our freedom in this country. I, I'm not saying that one is good and one is bad. That is not the concept or the point I'm trying to declare. I, I appreciate our freedom. I'm so thankful for those that have given their life that we may partake in not only religious freedom, uh, but the freedoms we encounter every day in this country. Those are good things, but they are not the same things as that freedom we experience in the Christian life. And if you'll consider that notion as we go through these scriptures, I think it would benefit you not only to uh, learn something new maybe in the scripture, but to encapsulate or further understand what your relationship with Jesus is actually like. I have to be honest, I think in many ways, especially my generation, we've been fed a hill of beans. We've been taught only one side of the proverbial coin. And there's an entire other side to be discovered. And my hope is these scriptures will help us do that today. I just wrote this. We should celebrate our freedom in this country <clears throat> as freely as we possibly can, exploring every notion of the concepts of our freedom, not only through the Declaration and its Constitution, but pioneering even farther the freedoms that this country so dearly has to offer. We have, however, mixed our idea of the American freedom with that freedom of the Christian life. Consider this. They may not be the same. And so... Before we move on into the scripture of chapter 6, I want to just do a quick recap of uh, the book of Romans. If we jump to the next slide here, it says, uh, <coughs> Romans recap, the three-part process of regeneration. Paul, in essence, is writing a letter to this church in Rome that is predominantly Jewish in thinking, and they've had some... Uh, dare I say, quarrels in the past. Essentially what he's doing is writing an essay on the nature of his faith, what in fact he believes in. If you were given a paper, an essay question that says, what do you believe? What would your theology be? And how would you explain it? Paul does so in the book of Romans, and he calls this in chapters 1 and 2, my gospel. It's not like his personal. He's saying to them, the God I believe in, the Jesus I know, what, he, what I know him to have done, he calls these things my gospel. In essence, asking us to compare what we believe to what he knows to be the truth. And we know divinely uh, that the Spirit worked through Paul that what he says is in fact the truth. Within that essay, my gospel, written to the book of Romans, which is also written to us, by the power of the Spirit, he takes three basic parts um, and, and considers them or talks about them um, as defining the process of regeneration. There are three parts to regeneration. The first, if you have a pen, this is worth writing down, is justification by faith. The first part of your regeneration is justification by faith. The second part of your regeneration is sanctification over time. And the third and final part is ultimate glorification. Today, we will be talking about sanctification, just one part of it, not the whole thing. One part of sanctification. Justification means that when we believe by faith, we are justified by the justice of the Lord. He's perfect in his justice, perfect in his mercy. In his uh, justice, he acquits us from our sin, and we are instantly justified as to of Christ, because Christ did a perfect work. Does that make sense? We are justified forever. It means can one time forevermore. The, the tense of the Greek word in, in, in Romans chapter 5 
um, is an eros tense, and it means once forevermore. You are not less justified than you will be tomorrow, and you are not more justified than you were yesterday. You are justified perfectly once forevermore, and you are continually that justified forevermore. The concept I like to use for this uh, cons- or, uh, consideration of justification is marriage. I do a lot. I did two weddings over the vacation, um, and uh, I tell a lot of uh, newlyweds, as I had discovered ever so recently, that the day I said I do, I was not going to be more married over time. I was holding her hand, walking back up the aisle, and I realized I'm as married as I'm ever going to get. This is it. Now, there's a lot to learn within my marriage, but I am not more married than I was in that moment. It's a fixed point. Does that make sense? You need to hear me, Christian. You are justified by faith, period, forevermore. God's not going to fumble you. He's not going to drop you. He's not going to change his mind. If you're acquitted from a crime, do you go back to the judge the next day and slide an apple over to him like, hey, man, the acquittal yesterday was pretty good. Can we maybe bring that up again? You don't get acquitted. You're acquitted forever. That crime is no longer a problem of yours. Every sin has been paid for by the propitiation of your sin on the cross paid by Christ. It's finished. When he said it, he meant it. He's never going to get up there again. We don't have to get up there ourselves. We have been justified by faith. Now, Paul gets in the end of... uh, 5 through 6, and even in the beginning part of 7, he talks about sanctification, which is different than justification. We're going to skip that for a second because we're going to spend a majority of today talking about sanctification. We're going to move to ultimate glorification, the three-part process. Ultimate glorification is that in heaven. When we die, the Bible says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. In our spirit, we are joined with him just as we are in faith by justification. When he returns in Revelation, this is the big scary book, when he comes back, when he comes down from the cloud, it says that we are regenerated. The Bible says we are given a new body and we are glorified with him forevermore. Not only are we a part of his in spirit, I get a new body that is sinless. It's not a broken thing, as C.S. Lewis would describe. It doesn't need to be thrown on the heap with the rest of the junk. It is perfect as my spirit is when the old thing has passed away and behold, the new has come. Does that make sense? Our regeneration is complete, you know, many years from now, I think. Nobody knows the time or day, but when, when the end times arrives upon us. Okay, I, I, I really need to be clear here because it's hard to go forward without this being understood. So I want to see nods from people. If that makes sense, don't be afraid to say, ah, I'm not sure. If that makes sense, give me one of these joints. Seems like we're all good. Okay, with that being said, why don't we jump into the scripture here and uh, see what the Lord has to say through chapter 6, chapter, uh, chapter six, verses 15 through 20. It's up on the screen here. If you have a Bible with you, uh, you can read out of it there. I recommend that you bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we would be happy to get one for you. Please just grab me after the service. Uh, Verse 15 says this, What then, Paul asks a question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone, as slaves, sorry, for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching when you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present um, pardon me, lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Before we go any further, talking about this scripture line by line, uh, I really feel like we need to pause for a second, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Can we go to the next slide? There is a a word in the scripture called doulos. 
call this the dither with doulos. Dither means confusion or misunderstanding, a mess. The dither with doulos. The word doulos is used over 130 times in the New Testament alone. Doulos is easily translated when you just go back to like a Greek dictionary. Um, if you're interested in one, Kittle is like the most aforementioned authority on just Greek words. Strong's is another good one. Doulos is simply translated slave. That's what doulos means. However, out of the 130 times communicating our reference to in relationship to Christ, in the King James Version, which is just one of the examples, doulos is only translated in the English, the word slave, one time. They call it servant. Now, King James Version was written in probably, I don't know, 1611 or so, something like that. So this is like way before civil war and our understanding of slavery. But the concept is that, that when we talk, when the scripture talks about slaves in general, meaning when slaves and masters, uh, in the book of Philemon, Paul is telling this slave to return to his master because it's a good thing. Doulos is translated slave almost every time. It just means slave. It means exactly that. But it was like when we were translating the word doulos when it, in reference to our relationship with Christ, it was hard to palate that concept. And so they changed it just slightly. They changed it to the word servant or bond servant. Now typically I don't want to pry on these things too much outside of my personal study, but I really believe this has affected our understanding of our relationship with Christ in completion. And I want to go just a little bit further to explaining this. Are we okay? Okay, the first thing is this. There are six words in the New Testament for servant, and none of them are doulos. When you're talking about slaves proper, they use doulos in reference to slave all the time. And doulos, in not only Romans chapter 6, but in many other places in the Bible, doulos is not called a slave, but a servant, and it affects how we see our relationship. Let's play a little game here. Uh, just respond if you think you know the word. Well done, my good and faithful doulos. The Lord says in, in Matthew 25, if you're looking for that reference, well done, my good and faithful slaves. Now we need to be careful here. Don't think of the, of the concept of a slave like, like the Civil War. That's, that's, a, that's a perversion or a twisting of the, of the concept of slavery, and that is an abomination to the word and not accurate and not good at all. Slavery in Roman times, over half the population of Rome was slaves. There was a concept to consider that's really not just a whippings and, and ridiculous levels of work and no freedom. I would go to a man, especially if he was a good master, and say, I will give you my life in exchange for covering for me and my family. A slave was an investment. You took care of your slave. Abraham took his most trusted slave in Genesis chapter 15 and, and uh, commissioned him to go find a wife for his only son. And that slave, representing the Holy Spirit, went and found, I mean, that's a big deal. Remember Abraham, father of the nation? You can't just pick any girl. You've got to have the right wife for that gig. And he trusted the slave for this thing. Why I pick so hard on this concept of a slave versus a servant is because they're not the same thing. A servant is paid. A servant can quit. A servant can come and go. A slave is owned. 1 Corinthians, let me just make sure I get this reference right. 1 Corinthians 7 uh, verses 22 and 23, uh, Paul says that you were bought with a price. You don't buy servants. You hire them. You buy slaves. Paul, in his introductions, if you read any of the uh, Pauline epistles, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Romans, all of these letters, over half of the New Testament was written by Paul. He introduces himself often the same way, and it's, it's commonly translated this, I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That word is doulos. Some slaves are taken, bought, and some slaves come willingly. Bondservant means I approach you and say I have a deal with you. 
You will get my life in exchange if you will cover me and my family. This is the concept of our Christianity. Christianity today, in reality, according to the word, is best described as that of a slave. You are a slave. Now that can be like hard to swallow. Are you a son and daughter or a daughter of the, of the King Most High? Absolutely, that is true. Do you get to partake in his riches and glory? Absolutely, that is true. But because we've only been taught this side of the coin, what we've done is said, this Christian life has something to do with me. And I'm a Christian and I deserve these good things and so I can go to the Lord and all of my dreams are supposed to become true because that's who I am. God is a giving God. But if you consider yourself a slave, what happens, you move yourself from the center of the stage and God becomes the most important character. And you, a servant of his. James calls himself a slave. Paul calls himself a slave. David calls himself a slave. Peter calls himself a slave. All using the word doulos. These are the people we aspire to be like. And they had the concept of being slaves well considered. We need to do the same. It doesn't mean we leave one concept to adopt the other. It's a both and scenario. But if we consider ourselves slave, I believe that it will a slave. I believe that it will seriously affect how we see our relationship with Christ. I could summarize it like this: This isn't about you. This isn't for you. We shouldn't consider our health, our wealth, our our bodies, the level of our satisfaction or our fun. Because we are here to serve, but you are serving a good master who will bring health in abundance, who will bring success in abundance, who will bring blessings in abundance. Not because you deserve it, but because he is good. Does that make sense? We must move ourselves as Americans from we are free, nothing can contain us, and we are the center of the picture, and I can do all things to, I can do all things to serve my master. Who is the Lord? Have I beaten this horse good enough? Okay. Um, this last scripture here, I just I, I want to bring another cross-reference because... Uh, I'm sorry. If you want to speak to me about this afterwards, about really how I studied it and where I went and um, some of the versions that I've read through, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. This isn't here. I'm not here to be a Bible study. I just really think this can affect the Christian culture. And so we, we need to spend a good time here. So let's go through one more reference and then we'll really jump into the scripture. Is that okay? Okay, good. I was going to do it anyway. It's not like I have the microphone. <laughs> you don't get a choice. <laughs> First week back, going to get fired. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. This is a really good reference here. Paul is considering uh, slaves proper. And, and throughout this whole text here, you'll, you'll see the word doulos where you see the word slave. But he uses the example of a slave and a master and then relates it to our Christian experience, our relationship to Christ. And he uses the same word. Let's, let's read here. It says in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. That's doulos there. Uh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye, uh, eye service or by men pleasers, but as slaves, doulos of Christ. Slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. When you are inviting somebody to become a Christian, you are talking about freeing them from sin. You are. You are telling them that there is a way out. But you are also inviting them into slavery. Underneath the bondage of sin. Liberated from that sin. And sacrificing your life. Giving up of yourself. So that you may be a servant to Christ. The first verse of the song that you sang uh, just a second ago, I thought this was great. It says this, If I rise, let me rise on you, not on all of my success, my esteem, or my pursuits. If I lose, let me lose my life, because I belong to Jesus. The flesh is crucified. This is not something worth being solemn about or frustrated like, oh, shucks, I'm an American and I'm still a slave. It's worth praising. I'm giving my life to the Lord because he has given so much to us. Okay? Okay.
Okay. Uh, my wife's looking at me like, hey, roll on, brother. It's good. Uh, let's go back to the verses here. We'll start in verse 15. I want to talk through each line. I've been exegeting this, this set of scripture for a while now, and I've got to say, this passage is the most difficult. Um, so I'm really going to try and, and, and do a good job here to help us through this. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul's repeating this question that you'll find again in the first verse of chapter 6. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. He says this thing again. May it never be. What he's doing here is creating this really big dichotomy between the concept of the law and the concept of grace. You need to understand that the law is not there to show you how to be good. The law is there to point out when you've made a mistake. Right? A speeding sign doesn't make you not speed. A speeding sign points out when you are speeding. Do we see that? That's how we, are, we fall, we fail in sin because we disobey the law. We are underneath, we are under service to the law. Every man, not just Jews, every person who's ever been born is under the law until by faith they are justified and then placed under grace. Grace says there is no more law. So if there's nothing to point out what you've done wrong, there's nothing to do wrong. Paul is saying, so now that there's nothing to do wrong, does that mean we can just do whatever we want? May it never be. The reason he says this is because two things have happened. The first is, not only have you been placed from underneath the law to underneath grace, you've been justified. You're as, you're as justified as you're ever going to get. The second thing that's happened, not only have you changed locations, you have changed your identity. You are a new creation. When you left the law, you left a dead thing there too. And you were regenerated in Christ. You have been given a new spirit that is perfectly aligned to that of Christ. Paul goes on to say in other sets of scripture that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. How can Christ have sin in him? He can't. How could we put that on? It's because we, the dead thing has been gone. So the concept that we can sin again is true in our reality, but the truth is God doesn't see any of that sin. He says in his word that the, that the, the sin that you're talking about, he doesn't remember. It's as far as the east is from the west. If you go north, eventually you go south again. But if you go east, you're always going east. It never catches the west. He's saying, you are not that person anymore. How could you possibly be something that you are no longer? Because of that regeneration, we are now under grace. Does that mean that we should sin? No. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone, as slaves of obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? This is an example. He's saying, you're a slave to the one you obey. And if you become a slave, you can't disobey or you're in sin and you deserve to be punished. So if I have a slave, when that slave says, I'm committing my life to you, my life is no longer my own, you own me. If I make a request of that slave and he does not do that, that means he obeyed something else than me. And he has broken the covenant that he's made between us. He is in deserving of punishment. When he sins, the result is death or punishment. But when you have somebody who is, oh, let's go back here, it says, you are slaves of the one whom we obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What if I have a slave who's given his life to me and he, he's always obeying exactly what I do? Righteousness means stand up or nice and tall, firm. I can stand before the Lord. You're standing in right standing with the owner, with the master. The problem is what we've been asked to do by God is perfection. So we are all under sin. We have all disobeyed. We've all, we all deserve death until our justification by faith brings us not only to a new place under grace, but he instantly sees us as perfectly obedient. All of you are sitting in the room going like, that may be how he sees me, but that's not how I am. Common phrase in the scripture or the, the Christian world today is I sin every day. You make some faithful statement, but then you don't want to be boastful, and so you say, yeah, but I sin every day. I pray all the time, but I sin every day. 
because we don't want to put ourselves into this esteem where we think that we're better than we really are. And I think the part of that is, is, is good. But the truth says, the Lord sees you as perfectly obedient. Let's go on in 17, and I'll, I'll show you this. <clears throat> but thanks be to God, through that you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You were transformed. The Bible says that uh, you, you cannot be a slave to two masters. I cannot be obedient and disobedient at the same time. It's impossible. So in my disobedience, Scripture says that something happened to me. It says you became, is the Greek term, something externally happened to you. If a tornado comes through here, nothing in, in us made a tornado. But that tornado happened to us. And it would change you. The concept here is uh, tutoro, which is form of teaching. That form of means a stamp. It literally is like a, like a, when you're stamping a coin or a seal. It says it's, it's, it's affected your heart. It's put a stamp on your heart. It's affected you eternally. So when the old thing passes away, you're transformed by this teaching into a new thing. A new concept, not a, not, a, not a new version of the old thing, a totally new thing. Behold, the old, the old has passed away, the new has come. Which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When I used to be a slave to sin, and all I could do was sin, and that's all you were capable to do, by faith, when you've been justified, the Lord has instantly seen you, not only as righteous in everything that you do, but he's given you the ability to actually be righteous in everything you do. Now, this is an important truth. Those of you Christians who say, yeah, I sin every day. Do you know that that's not the limitation? That's not the maximum capability of your Christian experience? The Bible is saying, I'm not saying, the Bible is saying you can go through life living in total righteousness, being in perfect obedience to righteousness. That's what it says. Let me give you just a, a quick reference here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Behold, the old things have gone, the new has come. You were given the freedom to please your master, the master of righteousness, when before you could do nothing to please him. Nothing, no matter the work you did. Not only were you acquitted from all the sin that you've done, you've now in your new body, in your new location under grace, you, listen church, have been given the ability to serve perfectly your master. This changes everything on the crossroads of life. Not only justification once continually, but sanctification. Every time you come to a decision, when before you could only choose Sin Street, that's it. Sin Street was it for you. All, that's all you could do. When you get to the Lord by faith and you're practicing in your sanctification, you now have a choice on the righteous road. And before when you couldn't do, make any other choice, now you can. And in fact, you can choose righteousness every time. Sanctification is nothing more than the expression of the justification you've experienced. When he says not guilty, you are just as Christ. Christ, we don't live that way every day, do we? Anybody in this room can say that? Please tell me someone can testify. I want your autograph. No. Sanctification is the process over time of being a physical demonstration of the not guilty charge you've been given. You are not a sinner. You are not a criminal. You are not dead. You think, well, yes, I am. No, you're not. That's what the Bible says. That says that thing is dead. I have to deal a lot of times with uh, widows. When I'm doing a funeral and someone passes, they'll say, well, I'm still married to him or her. And I understand the concept. You know, they, they love that person. But the truth is, they're not. Their, their relationship status with that person changes instantly when they pass. How could that person be married again to him, him or her as long as he or she is dead? Can't. Your relationship status with sin has changed. It has been dead. And a new thing has come. And when you accept that truth, not only in theory, but in principle, guess what? You start to live like Christ. When you live by faith, you start to act like God. I tell people that all the time. 
And you need to. Because when you start to live by faith, you start to do things Jesus would have done. And when you live by faith and you start to do the things Jesus would have done, you start to look like the, the Jesus that when he was on the planet. And people start to say, this Christianity thing, I don't need another sermon, but what is that? The stuff that he did, we can do today. Did you know that? Healing of the dead, the lame, the blind, all of this stuff. The regeneration of the church, changing a community, getting rid of divorce, healing sickness, uh, helping this country. All of those things are possible, and you can't tell, you don't have an argument good enough to change me from that. Because thousands of years of the Bible tell me different. And a resurrection. What do you got? Your experience? What you watched on CNN? It doesn't stack up to the truth. But we must accept the truth for it to be effective. Okay, let's go to the last scripture here. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, just for as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Paul is saying, okay, now let's talk about the question you've all been asking. He's saying, I'm going to speak, the next thing I'm going to say is speaking to your human terms because your flesh is weak. And that's what we're thinking. You're, this pastor's up here saying that I'm not supposed to sin anymore at all, but I sin every day. But then he says, I'm justified. But how can I be justified and be in sin? How can God see me in truth as perfect when in truth I'm really messing up? He says, your flesh is weak. We can all acknowledge that. But he says, present your members as slaves, submit your life, to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. He says, do the same thing. In the same way when there was no option, even when you wanted a way out, you were looking for another way but Christ. There was no way. You just continued to sin and dug yourself deeper into sin and dug yourself deeper into sin. Even when you didn't want to sin, you were sinning. He's saying there is a way that we'll talk a little bit about next week to continually present yourself as a slave to righteousness. Like there's no other choice. Beloved, you have a choice. And you have a choice to never choose sin again. You have a choice to give your body up as a slave. As a sacrifice to the Lord in return and saying, you have loved me so much, my life is yours. In exchange for your covering. I'm telling you one thing, it's a good deal. For when you were slaves for, to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you couldn't choose righteousness, you were free from it. It was never a choice. Separate from it, you were free. Now the same thing is true in the alternative. <clears throat> the result of this is sanctification. Sanctification truly means being set apart. You're set apart in faith. You have, the, you have the righteousness of Christ in you right now. You cannot live a more pious life and become more righteous. It's a fixed point. That's nonsense. I'm going to pray more, do more. That's not righteousness. You're righteous by faith alone in Christ. But the expression of your righteousness sets you apart. Why on earth would we want to be set up? But doesn't it just seem hard? I'm already going to heaven. I'll just do the best I can and can the best that I get and sit on the can and spoil the rest. Get to heaven and be all done. Sanctification sets you apart for his work. Remember at the beginning of the service when I said this isn't about you? Sanctification isn't about you either. Sanctification sets you apart to be a willing testimony for the rest of the world who isn't. That he may be, again, further glorified. That more people would commit themselves to slavery to the Lord, to becoming children of God. Your sanctification isn't about you. But then again, this whole life isn't about you either. Is that clear? Does that help us clear anything up at all? Okay, I, I'm sorry it's such a deep concept today. I usually like to have more fun, tell more stories, but, uh, but the, the, just the level of this scripture can be difficult. I want to try and wrap this up in, in, in one thing here if I can. We'll move it to the next slide. I've gone back and forth with my wife, my poor wife. She hears every version of my sermon throughout the weeks, and she, did, like, she could preach the message probably better than I can, because I've gone round and round on how to tie this all together. And I've decided to use a concept that I've used before. One thing for you guys, the Christian, to know, don't pressure your pastor to always be coming up with new stuff, a new teaching. 
You know, repeatability, I'm, I'm a teacher at heart. Repeatability is one of my most, for, is a foremost tool of mine. I didn't learn my math tables the first time around, did you? Took the brother a little while. I had to have the teacher, I know it's Monday, but just can you bring it around again? I need help. I've taught the truth and reality principle before. And for you to roll your eyes or shut off your ears to say, I've heard this one before, mm. go back and listen to one of your favorite sermons again and don't tell me it doesn't hit you in a different and even better way than it did before. In the same way as saying, I could just read the scripture one time and I'm all good. Pfft. I don't know nothing. And I've been doing this a while. I just keep learning that. Oh, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Because there's so much depth to this, to this stuff. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to go through this concept again. And if you've heard it before, you're welcome. Uh, truth and reality principle. The truth that is in the scripture that you hold in your lap cannot lie. But the question is, do you experience that truth in your everyday reality? No, we do not. I don't in my own personal life. When Jesus came down to the earth, the Bible says that he is the truth. Truth became reality. What he said, you know, uh, turning water into wine. He said the truth. He spoke the truth. And what happened? It became a physical part of the reality. He said, stand and walk. And then it did. Or he did. He said he would raise again on the third day. And guess what? Boop! I don't know if that's a sound that was made. <laughs> like doves or something. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and I'm losing them. Uh, Truth became reality. Truth met reality when Jesus put his feet in the dust of the earth. Then Jesus, the scripture says, put himself in you and you in him. And so the concept is the truth of God becoming the reality that we live in is our expression of sanctification. Here are some truths about yourself. If you are a Christian, this is not a debate. I'm not here to like talk to you about this. You are not a sinner. Not because you don't, but because that's what that says. The truth is, you are seen as the perfect righteousness of God. Not because what I say, because that's what it says. If you've got a problem with what I said, you've got a problem with it, it said, and I'll pray for you. But is that your reality? The concept of this Greek word is pistio. It means faith and action, faith in belief, the verb tense of faith. Living out our faith brings our truth and makes it our reality. Let me ask you this. Couldn't what you find in here be well served with what you see around this city? This would help, wouldn't it? These would be entertaining. <laughs> I got a trick. I got two loaves of bread and five fish. Watch this. Just bring everyone. That was a joke about the Bible. Man, it's too hot in here. Y'all think you're hot. Try doing what I'm doing. I'm sweating like a hog. Okay. I want your truth to become your reality. And it doesn't happen by working real hard or trying to become righteous. It happens by belief in faith. And the action of that faith. By knowing you have the choice to choose the righteous road and not sinful street. And choosing it every time. Well, Beck, that's hard. Well, Beck, that's challenging. Well, Beck, that could, I could end up dead. Yep, it's not about you. Remember, you're a slave. We've submitted ourselves to him. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up and get ready for the offering. <clears throat> I want to invite you to Dulos. I want you to um, receive personally in your own heart in whatever way you see fit in prayer and worship or whatever to examine the concept of you not only being a free American with your independence but that you have willingly given up your independence as a slave. I wouldn't invite you to something that isn't good. I'm telling you this, that you can serve yourself and it can be immediately gratifying. Or you can serve the Lord at the expense of yourself, and it will be eternally good. What a blessing, what an honor it is to serve the Lord. He's going to ask you to do some weird things. He's going to ask you to step outside your comfort zone. If you will listen to him, he will, he will request you to do things you never thought you could do. But then again, what's our ultimate fear of death? 
I think sometimes in America we're more afraid of embarrassment than we are of death. <laughs> but to be embarrassed, if our life isn't ours, ours, what does it matter? To be killed or martyred, if our life isn't your, ours, what does it matter? All the glory be unto him. Because that's where it rightfully belongs. Let's bring up our offering here. Get ready for communion. Uh, guys, you just come all the way to the front. Come hang out with me. We got a squad today. What's up? I haven't seen you in a while. Thank you, guys. Uh, I'm just going to pray for this, and then you guys will work your way back. Sound good? Lord, I pray that the offering be blessed today um, by your holy word and hand. God, I pray for those that give. They give not out of compulsion or out of requirement or out of some religious notion. But Lord, that they would listen to you and they would ask for you, the master, to request upon them what they should give. And if you say everything, I pray they obey. And if you say nothing at all, I pray you obey. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, put this level of obedience in their heart. Holy Spirit, help them and me as well in the room. I also pray, Lord, that you benefit from this offering, that you use it uh, to benefit your kingdom. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would put a blessing upon those that give, that you would return it to them tenfold, that they may give again. We pray these things and believe these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. family, when we celebrate, we celebrate around food. That's why I look the way I look. <laughs> I'm an Italian. And you go to grandma and go home, she's just putting stuff in your mouth. And then she gives you a loaf of bread to just, she's like, oh, you need some bread to like soup up whatever's left. In the Christian faith, we celebrate with a meal as well. We celebrate the life of Christ and what he gave and all that it cost him. We remember that, that moment on the cross and we celebrate that moment on the cross with a meal we call communion. Nothing magical happens in your, in your stomach. This is a symbol. In the same way, this ring that I have in my hand doesn't make me married. It's a reminder. From time to time, it clicks against the counter or glistens in the sun. And I, and I recall the blessing that the Lord has given me. I remember Lindsay and I's wedding day. And I'm encouraged in our marriage. Communion is the same thing. We celebrate and we remember all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step aside here and I'm going to invite you guys to come up if you feel ready. And communion, you know, isn't for everybody. It's for the believer. The Bible says you can bring a curse upon yourself for those that do not believe and partake in this meal. It's a simple meal, but a good one. And we're going to sing and worship here, and I'm just going to invite you to come down the center aisle and go to either side and get, and get whatever you need, and then we'll take communion together in just a few seconds. So whenever you're ready, you go ahead and make your way to the front of the room. Lord goes to the upper room with his disciples and he, he gives a long teaching. Uh, a big chunk of the whole Gospel of John is in the upper room. And he's not only sharing about the end of his life, but he's, he's imparting his final teachings to them, predominantly about love and sacrifice. And he says to the twelve that he's going to have, this will be his last meal, and, and, and he uses this bread and this wine as a representation of what he was prophetically about to do the next day. And he took the bread and he, and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he says, this is my body and my body is going to be given up for your sake in replacement of you. Justification. <laughs> and they took the bread and they ate it like you are doing now. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this meal. Um, as we chew and, and, and we swallow, Lord, I pray that we contemplate what you've done on the cross, that we, we connect back with it again. And in so many ways, your, your day on the cross was so long ago. But in so many more ways, it's so relevant and recent to us here and now. We celebrate 
Lord. Not that you had to do what you did, but that you were so brave and so willing and such a servant, not only to your Father, but to us. That you, the King of the world, would make a decision to exchange your perfect life for our life of racks. After the meal, he took a cup and he, and he held it up and it was, it was a symbolic picture of the blood that had been shed and sacrificed through the atonement um, and through the thousands of years before, the thousand years before. Covenant is a symbol of blood. He held up the blood and he, he said, what my body is going to do is going to work. And the covenant of his new and everlasting truth would never leave us. It would never forsake us. When we drink of this blood, we remember that God keeps his promises. That God cannot lie. And that when he spilled his blood, in the same way he atoned for our sin. And that what he said he did, he really did. And he did forever. Isn't it nice to know we can trust in God and trust in his promises? That he has made a covenant with us. And we remember his covenant right now. Lord, we thank you for this drink. And as we drink of it, we find trust and, and, and security in your covenant. We know that you've made a promise and that you cannot lie, that your word is true. We trust in it not on our own behalf because of things that we can do or that we can't do. But we know that we are free from the bondage of sin and death. That we are under the law now of sin and grace. Or of, of, of sorry, of life and grace. And that we accept that there's nothing we could have done, but you did it all anyway. Thank you, Lord, for going all the way. And we know, Lord, that you will finish the task with ultimate glorification. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. I pray that the Lord blesses you in so many ways this week. I pray that the truth of His promises falls upon you in a new way and that you can hold them and, 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 and trust in them. And I pray that as the truth uh, begins to show itself to you in new ways, that you would trust that that can become your reality as well. I pray that this doesn't become just another Sunday where you come and you listen and it's like 100 degrees in here and you get out and you go to Qdoba. I pray that in fact the Spirit would use um, you to help yourself. Not by working harder, staying up later, and getting up earlier. But I pray that the Lord would use you by laying your life down once again. You know, when I read that letter about John Adams, I was like fist pumping in Starbucks. America! It's all fired up. Uh, and in that spirit, I do also pray for a safe and wonderful holiday for both of you. Uh, uh, you and your family as well. Have a great week. God bless.